Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview veteran author Justin Martin about his most recent book, A Fierce Glory, Antietam, the desperate battle that saved Lincoln and doomed slavery, published by DeCapo Press. So I asked Justin Martin why he chose to write this group biography. I chose to do a group biography because I'd come to the conclusion that Antietam was just a incredibly consequential battle, an incredibly consequential day. It intertwined the fate of many, many significant figures, everybody from Abraham Lincoln to Clara Barton, the pioneering nurse, to Alexander Gardner, the famous photographer. So there are a lot of people, some of them on the battlefield, some of them not, who are intertwined by this one consequential event. When the Battle of Antietam happened in the autumn of 1862, the Union was in the midst of a terrible losing streak. And Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, had just for the very first time, uh, he'd do it a second time with Gettysburg a year later, but for the very first time he'd invaded the North. And so the consequences were gigantic. If Robert E. Lee won at that battle, it's very likely that the South would have won. The South winning could have meant a couple things. It might have meant that the South would have continued with slavery as an institution intact. It could have even spread the institution to other states. So it was very consequential. Was it consequential because of the losing streak that the Union was experiencing at that time? Yes, indeed. It was the Union was actually on its heels, as the, as, as the mm. word you might use. They lost a series of battles. Not only was there the possibility of military victory for the South, and military victory doesn't mean they take over the North, but it means they do so well in battle that the North says, we can't fight this battle anymore. You guys go on. Um, the war's over. You guys maintain the institution of slavery. That was a possibility. The other thing that was happening because of this losing streak was Northerners were losing faith in the war effort. And mm. so... It was a kind of a, a, a double whammy, as it were. And, um, and at this point, enslaved men were not part of the Union Army. Is that true? That is correct. Um, there were, of course, free African-Americans in the North, but they were not part of the Army. All right. So the other two elements that you use as, as the jumping off point for the book is Lincoln and slavery. So how does Lincoln factor in? So he's well aware of this terrible losing streak. He's well aware of the way that his political fortunes are in decline um, and the fact that, you know, that the North, which he's dependent on for, you know, their, their continued buy-in, for their continued um, contribution of troops to this cause, that the North is losing faith in this battle. And it's no surprise, in fact, that Antietam happens in September of 1862 because very clever Robert E. Lee, the Southern general, has figured out that if he can defeat the North on Northern territory, mm-hmm. the midterm elections are coming right up. And probably in the midterms what will happen is the Republicans, Lincoln's party then, everything was flipped in those days, so the Republicans were kind of the, the liberal party, the party of abolition and progressive ideas. The Republican party, Lincoln's party, would get swept out of power. 
replaced by a bunch of conservative Democrats who then in turn would hobble Lincoln's agenda, probably do something like stop contributing the money necessary to fight the war, perhaps negotiate a settlement with the South in which the South could return to the Union with slavery intact. So Lincoln was very aware of these political consequences and knew that the Union needed a a victory to, to keep this effort going. And then the last part of your subtitle is that this whole battle really doomed slavery. How would you explain that? The way it doomed slavery was Lincoln had a document literally sitting in his desk at the White House, a secret document he'd shared only with his cabinet members, and it was the Emancipation Proclamation. He'd been working on it and tinkering with it for months. At this point, the stated reason for the Civil War was to restore the Union. There wasn't yet discussion widely that the purpose of the Civil War might be to end slavery. But Lincoln knew that that would fire up the Union cause, but he also knew you can't do something like that on the heels of a, of a loss. You can't, you can't have your side lose a battle, a, a big battle, and say, oh, you know, we're going to end slavery in the South. You have to do it on the heels of a victory. And so Lincoln had been tinkering with this document and waiting while the Union went through this terrible losing streak. And so Antietam, this battle in, in September 1862, would ultimately furnish the occasion for Lincoln to actually issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves. And how much did you know about this battle prior to working on the book? Prior to working on the book, I'd done books on Walt Whitman and Frederick Law Olmsted and other figures who actually, you know, it was it was a big event of its day. The Civil War, of course, was the big event of its day, and Antietam was, you know, a hugely significant battle. And so just from those figures and, you know, sort of learning about the temper of their times, I become aware of what a a huge and important event this was. But to answer your question in full, I didn't know the half of it or even the tenth of it until I started (laughs) diving into it. (laughs) And then what was your military knowledge? My military knowledge was extraordinarily limited. And I like to think I turned that to an advantage because there are so many. I mean, the world doesn't need another military historian. They are a dime a dozen. And, um, you know, many, many people tell the stories of battles in what I might call an agnostic way. And what I mean by an agnostic way is they're not all that concerned often about the consequences of a battle. In fact, part of the reason that Civil War scholarship has been so popular is because one can talk about Robert E. Lee, who is a cruel slaveholder, they can talk about him as a wily and talented general and just conveniently ignore the fact that not only was he a cruel slaveholder, but he was actually fighting to maintain the cause of slavery. But if you're an agnostic military historian, you can just write, you know, and then Lee lined up, you know, 17,000 troops, and then his opponent lined up 18,000 troops, and they started firing. You can have an entire book devoted to tactics, the, Mm. the tactical battle. You can be impressed with both Union and Confederate soldiers on the basis of their tactical skill and ignore the larger issues. And so I'd like to think that maybe having so little knowledge in in military history, I was able to bring, I'd like to think, a larger cultural context to this important battle. You do. And the thing that I really appreciate and you do so well is that you describe in rich detail what the consequences in terms of human carnage that this battle brought about. And so what kind of research and materials did you draw on to be able to tell this story in such detail? 
not only was this an event that got a huge amount of scrutiny and attention from the standpoint of things like Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, such an important event. He, he called it the signature event of his presidency, as you might imagine. He talked about it and wrote about it. His supporters, members of his cabinet talked about it and wrote about it, and his critics talked about it and wrote about it. So there's no shortage of some of the big consequential things, such as Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. As for the soldiers on the field fighting the actual battle, mm-hmm. the incredible thing is there were 100,000 people involved in the Battle of Antietam. 100,000. 100,000. And this was and, a one-day event, And right? for a one-day event, for most of those 100,000 people, it precipitated the most important event. The victory at Antietam allowed Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. This gigantic battle Still the bloodiest single day in U.S. history. Um, more people perished, sadly, than in 9-11, Pearl Harbor, etc. As you might imagine, for a lot of the participants in the battle, just foot soldiers, it was the most consequential event of their entire life. They might have fought the entire rest of the Civil War. The next three years, they probably didn't get into a battle as brutal as Antietam. And then when they went back to wherever they were from, whether it be Charlotte, Virginia, or Portland, Maine, they probably did not have another event for the rest of their lives that was as consequential as that one day of Antietam. And so mm-hmm. most people, if they participated, 100,000 people at Antietam, and a huge number of them wrote a letter, wrote a diary entry, or wrote a remembrance later. So I had a veritable treasure trove of firsthand accounts to draw on. That's great, but where are those documents stored? It couldn't have been just in one place. Antietam has a wonderful repository. There are various war history libraries and so forth, or or colleges, um, places like West Point that have fantastic archives. That said, these documents are widely dispersed, but thanks to the Internet, somebody who, say, wrote a letter, it might be collected in an archive in... Beaufort, South Carolina. Mm. But now you might be able to find it on the internet. One of my greatest satisfactions when I do my research is I'd get a kind of a, a hint or a clue that something might exist. And literally 30 seconds later, I would be staring at a digitized version of an ancient letter or an ancient document of some kind. It was incredible. And it made me think in the old days, of course, you'd had to have found all those things in an analog fashion, traveled to these libraries, gone into the archives. It was sort of instant gratification. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So because you have access now to all this material... How did you decide what to use? Because you include some recollections by soldiers who may have been wounded and then wrote down what happened to them in their portion of this battle. The thing that I think stands out in your book is that you're not just saying, okay, so a thousand men died in this portion of the the battle or 10 people died over here. You're talking about men who when they started their push into certain parts of the field, someone right next to them, a best friend, or someone in the regiment that they were in was shot down and they moved them off the field. So it was the attention to those kind of details that you don't normally find in accounts about war battles. I appreciate your saying that. What I tried to do The best way to describe it is you see it actually even in action-adventure movies. It's actually usually done poorly, but there's a morality to any death. And so in action-adventure movies, the body count might be gigantic. Of course, the the hero in 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 an action-adventure movie lives, but all the minor characters, you know, they're, they're dying. 
and it's often not very well done, but there's usually a moral reason. They, they overreached, they made a mistake, they were naive or something. These are real young people, often from farms and communities. They're thrown into this horrific situation. What happens? Some of them were lucky. Um, some of them were unlucky in dramatic ways. Some of them were, you know, had shocking thing happen when they when they suddenly realized that the direction they were going, they were going right into, you know, the, the teeth of the enemy. And so those are the stories, I guess, that people are naturally attracted to, stories that have some kind of moral dimension to them. So those are the stories that when people wrote letters home, they said, you know, when my buddy died, you know, it's because of this, it's because of that. You know, there was, there, was, there was some dramatic underpinning that shined through in the, the source materials. And so my job was simply to find the most illustrative of those stories and tell them. And I, I should mention just in passing that where I tried to be the exact opposite of agnostic with the generals, because I felt the generals should know better. So say Robert E. Lee and the Confederate generals, they were secessionists, <laughs> literally secessionists. They are fighting to uphold a brutal, inhumane institution. The foot soldiers, on the other hand, I tried to treat them agnostically. They were just young men in a weird kind of way. A young man from, from the Confederacy didn't have that much different than a young man from the Union. They were simply fighting for their region. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I felt like you could extend sympathy to the suffering and even death of a Confederate foot soldier that was not necessary to extend to the generals who should know better. <laughs> and speaking of the generals, how were you able to determine what their thinking was during the course of this day? We're talking about Robert E. Lee on the Confederate side and George McClellan on the Union side. So how did you get inside their heads? Their heads are surprisingly easy to get into because Particularly in the case of McClellan, he was a very defensive person, and so he has letters and telegrams and also accounts after the the battle. You know, generals are supposed to issue battle reports, and so you had the generals themselves issuing their battle reports, which is a kind of an official document. And so you not only had Robert E. Lee and McClellan with their, quote, official battle reports, but you had their various deputies also, you know, saying McClellan told me this or McClellan felt this way. So you're getting a lot of information about both generals, both through their own account um, and also through their um, deputies. Fortunately, it made my job easier. McClellan in particular, because he was such a thin-skinned defensive person. He didn't restrict himself to the battle report. He had a kind of a telegraph battle after the Battle of Antietam with Lincoln, in which he tried to justify his actions at Antietam. Um, he wrote many, many accounts and talked to many people and wrote many letters to his wife, who he would um, confide in, in which he defended decisions he's made. And, and, you know, it made it possible to get inside his head quite deeply. <laughs> <laughs> Where were those letters stored? McClellan was an important enough general there where his collected letters, the telegrams he exchanged with Lincoln, of course, Lincoln's correspondence, including telegrams he exchanged with generals and others, is collected. So it was, again, easy enough in the, you know, to, to find. Would you say they were collected, uh, say, by the Library of Congress? In the case of Lincoln, certainly by the National Archives or whoever, you know, you know, being a president. In the case of McClellan, if I remember correctly, his letters were collected by a military historian. Okay. Um, and what uh, about Robert E. Lee? Robert E. Lee, there were letters to be found. I don't 
I'm trying to think back, and I don't recall him being as quite as um, voluble a correspondent as McClellan, but his letters were certainly, including some real interesting letters in which he talked about his political motivations for attacking in September in the first place, saying this is a, I think he's used the word, this is the most propitious time or something to invade the North because of the upcoming election and things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, President Lincoln was a good 50-some miles away in D.C., during the course of this battle. And yet you talk about his mindset leading into the battle, the battle itself, and then after. So again, how did you find out what he was going through and even personally what he was dealing with while this battle was in place? Well, fortunately, as a president, he was a closely watched person. And so you have the benefit of not only do you have the fact that Lincoln himself would often discuss what was on his mind, and certainly certainly the issue of slavery was an issue he had grappled with his entire adult life, really. even, even as a young person. Um, it was an issue that he'd wrestled with. And so there was a long trail, you might say, everything from speeches that he'd given, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, to things that he'd written, to things that he'd said to other people who wrote them down. So there's a long trail to see his thoughts about an evolution on the issue of slavery. Um, One of the things that that I found very meaningful and significant in the portrait of Lincoln that I attempted to convey was Lincoln as president, when the Battle of Antietam happened, he'd recently lost his son, Willie. And so I felt like in a way, this battle where so many families lost a a young member of their family. Well, Lincoln, although he he didn't, Willie died of a a disease. He didn't, he wasn't killed on the battlefield. I felt like that gave Lincoln a special sympathy for what was happening in that moment. You know, he was just, I guess the best way to describe it is people often say the White House is a fishbowl. I don't, think if I recollect correctly that he wrote very much about the loss of his son Willie but the White House being a fishbowl and Lincoln being both kind of an open book he was not a closed type of person and also just having a lot of intimates surrounding him a lot of people observed him he said a lot of things to people about the loss of his son that allows one to reconstruct and kind of get into his mindset. Okay. Again, we're talking about a massive amount of information and material. What did you do in terms of your writing process to bring all this information together? I guess the main thing I would say is I tried to think about all of this from the standpoint of some really big themes that you kind of elaborated on earlier, things like Lincoln's thoughts about slavery. It's very easy certainly with a battle, to kind of get down into the weeds. And the thing I I thought about was I thought, I tried to figure out ways to tell the human stories and try to really keep people focused on some of the big picture issues, like what was Robert E. Lee's goals and motivations in invading the North in a broad sense, as opposed to digging down and saying, well, at this moment, he's his 8th Regiment from Virginia, they're on this part of the field, but the 9th Regiment was here and they um, had an inflating maneuver, you know. That's how a lot of battlefield accounts are written. And so you kind of lose the forest for the trees, I I would say, in those. And so, so I tried to keep it with a human dimension and a thematic dimension, various themes, what people were literally fighting for, what the stakes were. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the stakes, was there a clear victory for the Union from this battle? There was a clear victory from the Union from two standpoints. One was Lincoln 
was very clever, and so he, he sort of announced victory, as it were. So that that helps. So so because it was it was very very um, you know it was, it was a tactical draw in the strictest military definition. The other thing, which I think it was a tactical draw that day. A couple days later, um, Robert E. Lee took his bedraggled Army of Northern Virginia and crossed back over into what was then Virginia, um, what's now West Virginia crossed um, the Potomac. And so at that point, if the invading force leaves Union territory, at that point, it was it really was, you know, evident that the North had the upper hand. But it was not, you know, it wasn't a decisive victory or a rout or anything. But I'd say, you know, Lincoln slyly sort of won the PR battle by um, saying, you know, we won. <laughs> so. But, you know, it's interesting, too, because this happened in September of 1862, right? Two, uh-huh. And yet, Lincoln didn't immediately issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Is that correct? That is so correct. So why, why was there a delay? One thing I would say, and it's one of the things I liked about working in this book, was Lincoln was a, he was not a battlefield tactician, of course. He was a brilliant, unrivaled tactician. And so what he had prepared to go after the Battle of Antietam was what was called the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And he was smart. He knew, of course, this was going to be met badly by the South. So why not announce something and have both carrots and sticks embedded in what you announce? And so he gave them 100 days, which fortunately, when he announced that 100 days took him right to New Year's of 1863. And so he basically said, you have the rest of the year, do this or this will happen. Don't do this and this will happen. He wasn't able to negotiate with the South the way that, you know, members of Congress could negotiate or something, but but they were aware of what the stakes were at that point. He said, you have 100 days to react. And he started to add some sticks and remove some carrots as time went on. And when the final Emancipation Proclamation was actually issued, its contours had changed in part because of the Southern intransigence. I mean, a good example is, during that 100 days, Lincoln decided, okay, I've given you some outs, some things that you can do. Like um, what? Um, one of the main outs was the notion of compensated um, emancipation. Even a lot of slaveholders recognized that, that this was an unsustainable uh, institution. So Lincoln dangled it. He was like, okay, free your slaves, and the federal government will pay you to free your slaves. In retrospect, it would have been the right way to go because the slaves wound up freed and they would have gotten compensated for it. So they ignored that offer. The South did. And so um, Lincoln instead came back with one of his notions he came back with was, okay, well, part of issuing the Emancipation Proclamation is we're going to invite African-Americans to join the Union Army. And so it went from get paid to free your slaves to guess what? Your slaves are going to want to flee to the Union, and some of them are going to join the Union Army and fight against you. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> Which is what happened. <laughs> and which is exactly what happened. Yeah, people forget that 10% of the soldiers who fought in the Civil War were African-Americans. Um, the South, to their great silliness, I can't think of a better word, um, enslaved people were part of their workforce, building munitions and so forth. They were growing the food which fed the Confederate Army. But, of course, the Confederates were afraid to arm them because, of course, they, they weren't willing participants in this enterprise. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what would you recommend to anyone who's pursuing a group biography that involves so many personalities? The major thing I'd, I'd recommend is creating a kind of, you might almost call it a tiered system. You don't want to give everyone equal weight. And Antietam actually was a wonderful example of this because, of course, Lincoln was the president of the United States. He's a 
gigantic figure in our country's history. And so it was easy to give him, you might almost think of like billing in movies. He's the star because he was the president, because, you know, he was drafting the Emancipation Proclamation. The generals are the second tier. Part of it is because they made a very interesting triangle. A triangle, and this, this is a recommendation I would make to anybody, a triangle is, it's just an innately interesting thing. And so you've got Lincoln is opposed to Robert E. Lee. That's part of the triangle. But he's also in opposition to his own General McClellan because McClellan, although he was the Union general, he was a Democrat. He wanted to fight for the preservation of Union, but he wasn't an abolitionist. He wasn't particularly against the institution of slavery. And so you've got a triangle in which Lincoln is in opposition to both his general he has to depend on to win this battle and the general he's hoping to defeat. And so a triangle in which you've got one person in a sort of top building and two secondary characters who maybe there's a lot of conflict throughout the whole triangle. That's a wonderful structure. And then beneath the triangle, although it's a group biography, as it were, an awful lot of the other characters are pretty minor billing in, in that they're soldiers who you who you meet sometimes sadly in the in the moments right before their untimely deaths or injuries. So they're not extensive characters the way that Lincoln Lee and McClellan are. That makes sense. And then I guess part of the quote unquote minor characters include Clara Barton and, and Alexander the, Gardner, that's yes, right, the, and Jonathan the, Letterman. Yeah, and that, since we're talking about this in terms of almost like a, a movie marquee or something, you got Lincoln at the top, you've got the two generals, Lee and McClellan. I devoted some ink and some time to Clara Barton and Jonathan Letterman, the medical pioneer, and Alexander Gardner, the, the um, innovative photographer. They'd sort of get third billing, and then beneath that you've got just all the, you know, what, what you might really describe as, as minor characters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last couple of things, and um, how long did it take you to write this book? It took me two years. Including research? Including research, yeah. That's pretty intense. It was intense. And and another recommendation I make to anybody is figure out, almost like a battle, figure out sort of a way to write your book while you're researching. There's a couple good reasons for that. One thing is if you've done all your research and you start writing, when you start writing, that's when you might realize you haven't done all your research. So so it's actually really good to do some research, write a chapter or two. Then you're, when you write this, you're like, oh, boy, I really wish I'd asked this or thought about this when I wrote this chapter. Well, it's not too late. You can go back and um, fill in the chapter that you feel is a little thin. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I was writing and researching concurrently, which I would highly recommend. The one other thing I'd say is, you know, you see every day, if you look at our current political situation, you see in a, in a weird kind of way, the Civil War is still being fought. It's not being fought, you know, with, with weapons at this point, but the same ideas. And, you know, the Battle of Antietam, I guess, in a weird kind of way, you can say it's, it's still sadly being litigated, I guess would be the word. It's not being fought with weapons at this point, but the same issues uh, continue to roil our society. That was author Justin Martin speaking with me about his latest book, A Fierce Glory, Antietam, The Desperate Battle That Saved Lincoln and Doomed Slavery, published by DeCapo Press. This interview was recorded on May 20th, 2023, during BIO's annual conference at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York. To learn more about BIO, or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. 
And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.